The sermon today comes from Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have a stronghold to the for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the, rep the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is, is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. I want you to imagine that you have two people, exact same age, same socioeconomic status, uh, same education level, even the same temperament. And you hire them, and you tell them that they're going to be working on an assembly line. They're going to take part A, put it in slot B, and then hand it off to the next person on the assembly line, and they're going to do this over and over and over for eight hours a day. Identical rooms, Identical lighting, same number of breaks per day. And so exact same conditions, yet there's one difference. You say to the first person, at the end of the year, I'm going to give you $30,000. You tell the second person, at the end of a year, I'm going to give you $30 million. So after a few weeks, the first person says to the second person, isn't this so tedious? Isn't this driving you insane? Aren't you ready to quit this job? And the second person responds by saying, no, this is great. I love it. I whistle when I work. Now, what's going on there? And this is not an illustration that is teaching that money makes you happy. But, but, what is going on there? You have two people whose present attitude, 
and present behaviors are being controlled by a future reality. What we believe about the future controls how we experience and live today. Isaiah 25 is this beautiful picture of God's future. There's two ways to look at it. When you see a picture of God's future like this, you either live for it or you live from it. Now, most commonly when we talk about end times, when we talk about the future, we talk about it in the context of living for it. It's almost seen as a consolation, you know, a comfort for a life of tragedy and hardship one day. Or it produces this grin and bear it attitude. Like I can grin and bear it today because there's this comfort coming in the future. Or, or a lot of times it produces escapism, which says I just want to escape this world and get to this future of comfort. The other way to see God's future is living from it, meaning that God's future in times, all that's coming one day, new heavens and new earth, is actually a truth that shapes how we live today. It's a truth that shapes the church today. You say, but how? What kind of church is created and shaped by God's future? What kind of church is created and shaped by God's future? First, a church that hopes. A church that hopes, verses seven and eight. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. What is the covering? What is the veil that is over all peoples, that is over all nations? Well, it's two different words that are getting at the same thing that will be swallowed up. In fact, there's a third word at the beginning of verse eight, death that gets at this same thing. Death will be swallowed up forever. So you have a covering, you have a veil, and you have death. All three of those words are speaking about the same thing that's gonna be swallowed up. You say, what is that thing? It's the curse that was pronounced on the world in Genesis chapter three after sin had entered God's perfect world. And there are different aspects or parts to the curse in Genesis chapter three. Death is one of the results of the curse. Not just spiritual death, separation from God, but physical death. People started physically dying for the first time after the curse came upon God's world because of sin. That's why death is not natural. It's why we mourn and grieve it so much. 
but also women would experience pain in childbirth, we read in Genesis 3. Uh, Work, all that we're involved with 40 plus hours a week, would be hard, would be difficult, would be frustrating, thorns and thistles. God's perfect creation would be marred with weeds. Natural disasters would disrupt the perfect order of God's creation. This is all part of the curse, the veil, the covering. What's God's future hold for the curse? It says he will swallow it up. Now that's an interesting word. It's a significant word to describe how the curse will come to an end. Notice Isaiah doesn't say God will just set it aside or he will remove the curse. It says he will swallow it. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's in 1 Corinthians 15 that he takes this this future reality of the curse swallowed and he brings it into the present. When he says in verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. That word swallow means to consume. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he swallowed the curse, which included death. And when he swallowed the curse, he broke the power of it. He broke the power of the curse. Now, when you think about the world we live in today, you say, wow, there's still a lot of evidence of the curse. That's because when Jesus died on the cross, he broke the power of the curse. The presence of the curse is not yet gone. So we still live in the presence of the curse, but the power of the curse is broken. We live in this already but not yet tension. So what kind of church should that create and shape? If the power of the curse has been broken, the presence of the curse is still here, but the power has been broken, what kind of church should that create? It should create a church that hopes. It should not create a church that's pessimistic. In fact, pessimism is contra-gospel. Pessimism is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pessimism solely and exclusively focuses on the presence of the curse that is still around us. But it has completely lost sight of the power of the curse that's been broken. And so pessimism and despair are contra-gospel. And there's two forms of pessimism. They look very different on the outside, but they're identical. One form of pessimism looks at sin and evil, sees sin and evil, sees the presence of the curse, and believes that it's winning and functionally believes that it will win the day. That's one form of pessimism. There's another form of pessimism that sees sin and evil, it sees the presence of the curse, 
but ignores it and pretends like it's not there. That's what we would call, it presents as optimism, but it's unfounded optimism. And unfounded optimism is veiled pessimism. Both forms see the presence of the cursed, see sin, see evil, but then descend into despair upon seeing it. God gives us a regular rhythm in one of the sacraments that confronts our pessimism regularly. We see it here in Isaiah 25 in verse six, when he speaks of this amazing rich feast that we will experience at the end of time when Jesus returns. And yet that future reality is seen throughout the story of the Bible in foretastes of this feast. So in the Old Testament, Israel had several annual feasts that they would celebrate that had rich food that was all a foretaste of this final feast that would come. In the New Testament, the Lord gives us the Lord's Supper that we practice regularly, which is a foretaste of this final feast described here in Isaiah 25 that is coming. It's a foretaste of victory, not defeat. And that should produce a church that is not pessimistic, but a church that has great hope for the future. Victory, not defeat. Death is swallowed up in victory. The question is, how has pessimism consumed you? How has pessimism in our day and age, which there's plenty of it out there in the past couple of years with what's transpired, how has it begun to consume your heart? On June 6, 1994, it was the 50th anniversary of the Allied forces invading Normandy. And that was the historic World War II battle where the Allied forces sought to free continental Europe from Nazi control. And as they did these 50-year anniversary celebrations, all the major networks did something. One of them, in their program, ran back-to-back -back interviews of aging veterans who had been a part of that day. And they were absolutely contrasting interviews. The first one was with a Marine who had landed on Omaha Beach. And he described the absolute horror as he looked around at the carnage that was happening. He said, it, it, you know, it brought back the, the scenes from Saving Private Ryan, just awful tragedy and carnage around him. And he said, as he looked around and he saw all the bloody casualties, he concluded, we are going to lose. Then they interviewed an aging veteran who was with the U.S. Army Air Corps reconnaissance. And he was a pilot that was flying over that day. And flying over, he said he saw the bloody casualty on Omaha Beach but he also saw the paratroopers that had landed in different spots. 
And he saw, the, he saw the air raid and what was being dropped and what it was doing. And he saw all of this together and he concluded, we're gonna win. The church doesn't ignore the bloodshed and the hardship and the tragedies in a broken world where the presence of the cursed is still present. But the church doesn't look at that and fall into despair because the church has its eyes set on the curse that was swallowed 2,000 years ago. When the power of the curse was broken and the church lives in that victory. And I would just say, when you look around, when you watch the news, when you get on social media, there is so much out there right now that is pulling your heart into pessimism and pulling your heart into despair. And yet the church in the midst of all of this is to be a beacon of hope. A beacon of hope that has an answer that the world's looking for. Because everything you see on social media and everything you see that's happening on the news is the world's attempt to find an answer. And we know that any answer outside of what Jesus Christ has done will fail and is failing. And so the church is a beacon of hope. That's what God's future produces. That's what God's future creates and shapes in the church, is a hope that the world's hungry for, but a hope that's founded on something that was accomplished when Jesus swallowed the curse. So what kind of church is created and shaped by God's future? First, a church that hopes. But second, a church that comforts. Look at verse eight. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The Apostle John uses this language in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, and he is pulling from Isaiah when he says in Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God's future includes tear wiping. We serve a tear-wiping God. And because we serve a tear-wiping God, we are to be a tear-wiping people. We are to be a people that comfort one another. Why are so many tears shed? Because the presence of the curse is not yet gone. That's why tears are shed but the power of the curse has been broken. The church has no power over removing suffering. The church can't remove the presence of the curse. That's in God's hands. And one day he will when Jesus returns fully. But the church does have the power to comfort and that is a tangible expression of the power of the curse being broken. That's what the church can do. In the midst of the suffering, to comfort one another deeply. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies 
and God of all comfort, a God who wipes tears, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that when God wipes your tears, certainly he's comforting you, but there's a so that to it. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, the presence of the curse is still around us. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. So through Christ and the power of the curse being broken, we share in comfort. We wipe tears. The tear-wiping nature of God's future creates a church today that comforts well those who are suffering. I have found, and I've experienced this myself to some degree, that we don't always do real well in comforting those who are suffering because we feel powerless to fix the situation. And oftentimes, if we can't fix the situation, we feel like we have nothing to offer, and so we tend to just back away. And I would say, if that's you, and let me just say, that's every one of us to some degree. You have forgotten in that moment the period of time in which we live, which is the already but not yet. We live in the presence of the curse, and you and I have no power to remove that. It will not be completely removed until Jesus returns. But we do live in a time where the power of the curse has been broken. And so what we do have to offer is a tangible expression of that power of the curse being broken, and that is comfort. To come alongside those who are hurting and to comfort them. To wipe their tears. When you come alongside someone who is hurting, and you wipe their tears. You are helping them to believe that the power of the curse has been broken. You are helping them to believe that despair is not gonna win the day. Comfort pushes back on despair. And is a reminder that the power of the curse has been broken. Whose tears do you need to wipe? Who is in your circle of influence? Maybe family, maybe a spouse, maybe friends who are going through it, who need their tears wiped. And God has called you to be an agent of comfort for that person, to remind them that the power of the curse has been broken because Jesus swallowed it. May Christ Church East May this local body of believers be a tear-wiping body, that that's who we would be because we serve a tear-wiping God. What kind of church is created and shaped by God's future? A church that hopes, a church that comforts. Third, a church that honors. A church that honors. Look at verse eight. And the reproach 
of his people he will take away from all the earth. God's future includes reproach being taken away. That word reproach means disgrace or shame. There will be no shame or disgrace in God's future. We serve a shame-removing God. We serve a disgrace-removing God. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took your shame, he swallowed it, and bestowed and clothed you with his honor. That's what happened at the cross. And and Paul, the apostle Paul, again, just like he did in 1 Corinthians 15, but here in Ephesians chapter two, Paul brings this future reality when shame and disgrace will be no more, when Jesus returns and he brings it into the present. Ephesians 2, verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice that raised us up with him and seated us is past tense. What will be true in the future when we are seated with Christ becomes a present reality through the work of the Holy Spirit. that Jesus takes your shame and he bestows upon you honor now. Now here's the question. Does the body of Christ, does the church reinforce this truth or negate this truth? Meaning, do those who are close to you feel honored by you or quietly shamed by you? And I would say this is a really pressing question. If you or someone close to you has transparently shared a source of deep shame or insecurity. Because once you have done that, you put your heart in a very vulnerable position with people. If someone close to you struggles deeply with anxiety and feels shame over it, Do you add to that shame or do you reinforce the the honor that Christ bestows on them? Or if someone very close to you struggles deeply with sexual immorality and feels shame over it, do you add to that shame 
or do you reinforce the honor that Christ bestows upon them? Do the least of these in our society feel dignity in your presence? Do the least of these in our society, if they walk into this room, feel dignity and honor in your presence? Because Christ bestows honor on them. And there's dignity in Christ's presence. And the church is to be a tangible expression, albeit imperfect. We are absolutely imperfect at that. But it's to be an expression of that honor that comes from Christ, flows through his church, through his people, to the world around. R.C. Sproul who was a pastor, shared the story of a college student that he once taught who had cerebral palsy, which meant that he would have these spastic movements, this garbled speech. But Sproul said, but he was, he was brilliant and so capable. This is what he writes about his experience with this college student. One day, he came to me, he, this college student, came to me vexed with a problem and asked me to pray for him. In the course of the prayer, I said something routine with words like, oh God, please help this man as he wrestles with this problem. When I opened my eyes, the student was quietly weeping. I asked him what was wrong, and he stammered his reply. You called me a man. No one has ever called me a man before. Let me state the obvious. This is a room. If we get rid of the facades, this is a room full of people who are deeply insecure and full of shame. There is shame and insecurity that you deal with that you may have not told anyone, but that you quietly deal with. And I want you to hear what Jesus has done for you on the cross. If that is you, <laughs> Jesus swallowed your shame. He swallowed the curse. He swallowed death. He swallowed your shame and bestowed his honor upon you such that Paul can write in Ephesians 2 that you are already raised up with him and seated with him because the honor is yours now. And so the challenge to the church, broadly speaking, but to this local body, is are we a people who reinforce that honor that's bestowed by Jesus? Or do we quietly, by, our, by our, our silence, or maybe some passive aggressiveness, or just in our anger, do we shame people? May this be, this place of broken, imperfect people, be a place where honor 
We honor one another because Jesus honors his people. May that be the type of church this is. Right, that Christ Church East would be a place that hopes, that doesn't fall into the despair around us or watch the news and fall into pessimism. There's no room for it. May it be a church that hopes. May we be a church that comforts, that wipes tears. May we be a church that honors one another. That's a beautiful place. That's what the world's longing for. And when the world walks in, would they feel that? That leads us to the last point. What kind of church is created and shaped by God's future? Church that honors, a church that comforts, a church that hopes, and finally, a church that trusts. Isaiah concludes this beautiful picture of God's future with verse 9. He says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. We have waited means we have hoped that he has saved us, not that we've saved ourselves. Right? This is a picture of beautiful trust. Now, here's the question. The last three verses of this chapter, Isaiah speaks about the judgment of Moab and the pride of Moab. You say, how does this connect to God's future and the role it plays in shaping the church today? Well, look at verse 11. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride. This is speaking of Moab. Together with the skill of his hands. If we go back to chapters 15 and 16, those are two chapters in Isaiah that speak of Moab and speak of the pride of Moab. That Moab was a, a, a group of people that refused to seek security in God's promises. It was the, the epitome of self-reliance and of self-effort and this imagery of them trying to swim out. Even as God's judgment is coming down, they're still trying to swim out. They're still trying to swim away. They believe they can prevail over their, their circumstances. They can conquer their environment. They're competent, self-assured, need no external salvation. And that's the human heart right there. Right? That's the world we live in, just a place of rugged self-reliance. But what we learn here is that in God's future, there will be no self-reliance. In God's future, there will only be perfect trust and perfect dependence. Jesus Christ put on flesh to swallow your self-reliance in his death and to resist self-reliance in his life. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus comes into the Garden of Gethsemane, we see this beautiful picture of Jesus resisting self-reliance and we see What's at the core of self-reliance? Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In Jesus' humanity, he was fully human. He was fully God. But in his humanity, Jesus saw the pain of the cross in his future 
and he was tempted to find a way out. And that's why Jesus understands your temptation to be self-reliant, because he experienced that temptation. He resisted it perfectly for you and therefore has power to give you in your moments where you're tempted towards self-reliance. But what we see here is that at the core of self-reliance is the path of least resistance. I will say what I need to say, and I will not say what I should say. I will do what I need to do, and I will not do what I should do to ensure worldly success or to avoid pain, to avoid failure, to maintain control. That's, that's self-reliance. That's why we're tempted by it. You say, what are the warning signs of self-reliance? What are the warning signs of pride and self-reliance? Let me give you a couple here. And this is to be a diagnostic for you to be aware of it and then not to turn to despair, but in repentance to turn to Jesus and know that he perfectly trusted in your place. Couple warning signs though of self-reliance. First, is your time in God's word deteriorating? Is your time in God's word deteriorating? Second, is your time in prayer getting less and less? Is your time in prayer getting less and less? Third, is there an unwillingness in you to confront someone when you know you need to confront them? Or an unwillingness to have that hard or that honest conversation? That's a sign of self-reliance, path of least resistance. Or do you find yourself, just generally speaking, losing patience with people? Those are all signs of self-reliance. And if you're convicted by those, that's a beautiful place to be because it's your opportunity to turn back to Jesus who resisted self-reliance perfectly in your place and has the power for you to resist self-reliance. Jacob Smith is a 15-year-old legally blind free-ride skier. 15 years old, he's legally blind, uh, has tunnel vision, no depth perception. Uh, his actual vision, if you were to account for it, uh, is four times that of legal blindness. Uh, if he, you know the eye chart, when you go to the eye exam, there's a big E. From 20 feet away, he needs that blown up like four times to even be able to, to somewhat see it, okay? So you say, how in the world does he ski? Well, he has a team, it's his family. His, his older brother will take him up to the top of the mountain. And this isn't just like take a ski lift and go down a nice slope. This is extreme skiing, okay? So he takes him up past the ski lifts, up to the top of the mountain. And then Jacob has this two-way radio in his pocket that he keeps up on high volume. And his father is at the base of the mountain on this radio, and he guides Jacob down the slope. And this is what his father said Nathan said about the experience with his son. He said, it's on me to make sure I don't let him down. 
I have to guide him through narrower chutes or not go off a cliff. He says, Jacob is not reckless. He knows his limitations. I think he has the ability to ski anything on the mountain, but he's not gonna try to do it by himself. He wants to be with someone who he trusts. He won't ski with people he doesn't trust. And then this was the best part of it. They asked Jacob how much he trusted his father. And here was a short response. I mean, enough to turn right when he tells me to. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him to turn right when he says turn right? No matter what the consequence, do you trust him? to follow him, to hear his voice through the Holy Spirit. Because a church, people, a body of people, a church that trusts Jesus is a church that hopes. And it is a church that wipes tears and that comforts. And it is a church that honors it honors people. May we be a body of people that look at God's future that we see here in Isaiah 25 and see that future and not just live for it and try to escape this world or grin and bear it to get to that future, but may we see that future and allow it to shape who we are today and the kind of people that we are today that would give the world a foretaste of what is coming that is beautiful, that is the answer, the only answer to everything we see wrong in this world today. May that be the church. Let's pray. Father, we are hope-based people. You've made us that way. And you've given us such reason to hope. You've swallowed the curse. The power's been broken. And yet the presence of the curse is still around us. Oh, Father, would you help us in a world that is searching for answers, in a world that's desperate for answers to the, to the evil, to the sin, to the brokenness around us, would you help us to be a people who hope, a people who wipe tears, a, he, a people who bestow honor? And would you make us a people that trust because God, you are completely trustworthy and it's not unfounded. You have shown us that you're trustworthy in sending your son to die for us and to rise for us. Father, I pray for people that are here 
those that, that don't know Christ, those that maybe right now are being profoundly impacted by the presence of the curse, who are going through significant hardship, suffering, maybe tragedy, lost loved ones, disease, sickness. Oh, Father, would you reveal to them the beauty of your future and the honor that is theirs today, that Jesus, you take their shame and their insecurity away and you bestow your perfect honor on them. Oh, Father, would you make us a people that are quick to share that good news. And now as we close in worship, would our response be to sing loudly? That as we see this incredible future of yours, that it would shape even how we worship, even how we sing now in response, that we would sing as a people full of joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.